and welcome to episode two of Hustle and Thrive. On this episode, we tackled engaging with queerness and how to do so meaningfully and without tokenizing. We're so pleased to have had this conversation with Anthony Oliveira. And over the course of this episode, you can expect to hear more about the weight of dealing with people wanting to universalize your very specific experience as a queer person, the difference between having values and living your values, and the delicate balance between querying existing institutions and building your own spaces. More about Anthony. Anthony Oliveira is a writer, film programmer, pop culture critic, and PhD living in Toronto. He is the host of the Review Cinema's Dumpster Raccoon film series, a recurring guest on CBC's The National Pop Panel, and a host for various TIFF red carpet and events. His pieces have appeared in The Washington Post, Hazlitt, Extra, Torontoist, Fangoria, Star Trek.com, and others. He's a two-time winner of the National Magazine Awards and is working on several upcoming comic and graphic novel works. He can be found on Twitter at Mia Koopa. His handle is M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A, and it's available in our show notes, um, where he tweets about the arts, politics, and LGBT culture. Or you can also listen into his podcast called The Devil's Party, where he reads through Milton's Paradise Lost. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe wherever podcasts are found. So thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us for our second episode of Hustle and Thrive. Oh, my Thrive. pleasure. From everything, you have a wide range of credits to your name. You've written columns for Hazlitt and other um, publications. You've done podcasts. You've been featured on panels, and you've done a lot of collaboration plus your own projects. Um, so my first question is this. Can you talk about how your identity plays a role in your work and the ideas that you share? Oh, bring up? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, it's such a involved, weird question. Uh, my identity... I kind of is the engine that powers a lot of my creative work. Um, uh, I'm a gay man. I'm very involved with the queer community. I work in um, uh, Glad Day Bookshop, the oldest LGBT bookstore in the world. So, uh, and I'm very like community oriented. And uh, I think it's important as a creator for me that queerness is not just like a sexual identity. Um, it is. It is a culture. It is a political position. I'm very firmly of the belief that you don't just happen to be gay. I think that that's a very reductive way of thinking about one's identity. So when I work on projects, not always. I mean, I have done I've done several projects that don't necessarily involve queer characters. I think they're still queer by the nature of who I am as an artist. But it's certainly something that I'm interested in. And it's certainly something that um, I'm not too shy about incorporating because I feel like there is a real dearth of material about queerness. I feel like... Um, the heterosexual paradigm has had 5,000 years of artistic history, uh, and whenever queer art does emerge, it gets effaced and rewritten and recontextualized so that it's no longer queer. So I'm nev I never worry about like, oh, I'm telling another queer story because there's so few of them. Yeah, so you're basically just telling your own story, and, and as you said, it's an engine that powers your work. So that's, it's really, um, that's really great. So... Um, Basically, regarding the spaces that you've worked with, uh, what are the things that made it obvious that they're partnering with you or the partnership that you've gained with them, it's, it's, that it's genuine and not just like, oh, okay, oh, we need to add a queer um, identity or representation mm -hmm. in this project. How have you um, picked your partnerships? <laughs> well, I've definitely, it's funny, I've definitely gotten jobs because I was gay uh, and they needed a gay and they didn't have a gay on staff. 
<laughs> and so that's always a strange moment because it's like, well, it's nice to be included, but it would also be nice to have dental. And it would be nice if you were paying a person all the time who was gay instead of just sort of farming out these projects when it's convenient to you. And then like, thank you so much for your participation. And then you're all straight staff goes back to work. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that there are in terms of like red flags as a writer, as a creator, I think we have to be very sensitive to this idea of trauma porn. It's a it's a real problem, especially lately where you're sort of, and not just for queer people, um, for many marginalized groups, where you're called upon by uh, yeah. these editorials to sort of produce evidence of your damage. And uh, the more gritty and raw and um, exposing it is, the better it is for them. And there's not a lot of market for queer joy or for stories that are about my relationships with my friends that don't involve some kind of terrible coming out narrative or something like that. Um, so that's always a red flag. Uh, I think there's also, there's ways that people don't realize they're sort of betraying their lack of literacy with regards to queer issues. Um, I always consider the word diversity a real red flag, especially if it's like, especially if it's like diversity is our strength or if they're like, they call you like a diverse person. <laughs> like no one is a diverse person. Yeah. <laughs> you're describing a culture yeah. you're trying to sort of acculturate, but especially like um I really, really dislike the phrase an LGBT person. Uh I don't think unless you have a very interesting and fascinating biography, you're probably not a lesbian, bisexual, gay. Uh, transgender person so like you are one of those identities that is a political coalition that acronym it is not an adjective to describe one specific person um, anything that suggests that a workplace is actually just trying to use your uh, identity as a resource always freaks me out it's always like I am not here the the who I am is not to serve your bottom line so I always think that's a, a red flag um I also think it's telling when I always look at the marketing of a of a contract that I'm working at. Like, uh, what does their what does their actual queer representation look like? And there's like sometimes it's like yeah, there's a queer couple in your ad, but sometimes it's like there's every time your pride stuff rolls out, it's just generic rainbows, and you're not really saying anything. I consider that a big red flag for working for a cultural. Um, uh, whether it's like a, um, a workshop or whether it's like an institution, like what does your actual queer representation look like? Yeah, that is a great point to make because like with anything, it's always, I think that people should actually have the representation within their spaces because those people can um, have more knowledge of whatever the subject matter is, in this case, um, LGBT issues or and it's best when they are the ones who can actually come up with the ideas and then it doesn't feel like, oh, okay, they don't know anything about it and they're just expecting you to come up with ideas and just use your identity yeah. to help their project. It, exactly. It's also, you can always tell when it's like, well, we need to hear what a queer person says about this, but it's always towards some kind of vision of universalism. It's always towards like everybody's included. It's this like... Um, for other marginalized communities, it has the same ring of like all lives matter, you know, like it's like, well, actually, I'm, I'm here to tell you about my specific experience. And when you try to universalize my specific experience, it becomes clear that you don't actually care 
with my specific experiences. You just want it to be a package that like my my experience is one of the posters in your subway ad of 12 posters. Right. And that to me is always a red flag. Yeah, as like a queer person myself, I think something I struggle with, it's the well-meaning side of it, right? It's sort of the, you know, I I have questions about gender-neutral bathrooms, and as a queer person, like, maybe you can help me understand this, and sort of that responsibility that seems to be thrown on, like, the one queer person in the room. Um, Like, you know, (laughs) how do you deal with that? Like, you're someone who's obviously in the media, you've written, like, I'm thinking specifically of your Death in the Village piece, like, it's hard to do that that's not easy work like how do you get through that yeah and it is it is work that i think you should be i think it's i think you've articulated pretty well that there is there's work that has to be done but it is work that is being demanded of you that is over and against the regular work that someone else has to do right like it's always something you have to be aware that you're opting into and that you're expending your resources on um like uh, oh i forget who said it but someone once said that Um, The main goal of racism is to make you busy. It is to force you to do all this extra work that keeps you occupied while the system keeps running the way it runs. And that's true for a lot of marginalized communities, I think, is like, I have to explain, I mean, look at what's happening this week with the uh, Toronto Public Library. Like, um, the Toronto Public Library is trying, is granting space to TERFs to talk about how um, transgender women are not women, basically, and that they shouldn't be involved in uh, sporting events, they shouldn't be allowed in washrooms and change rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the Toronto Public Library is positioning this as like, well, we need to have a conversation, we need to have a conversation. It's like, eventually, we have to decide that we're no longer having conversations about who gets to have human rights. Eventually, that conversation stops, or you're forcing our community to expend all its energy re-litigating and re-defending the rights it's already won. Um, that's, that is work that is the, the making, making me do that work has itself an ideological, um, uh, drive to it. It is no longer a neutral, like, let's just have a conversation. Like if you were in a family and every Thanksgiving, we talked about whether or not our transgender son counts as a human being, that's not a neutral, like politically (laughs) neutral thing that is made a decision about what the culture of our family is going to be like. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that, I do do that outreach. I mean, the piece you talked about, the uh, death in the village, I was very aware when I was writing it that I just wanted to do almost like a biopsy of what my life was like that week. So it was about the Bruce MacArthur murders, but it was about the death of Tess Ritchie. It was about the the death of Allura Wells. It was about the fact that I can't, I can't walk past certain buildings without the blood drive asking me for my blood. And I have to explain once again that I'm a queer man and I can't donate blood. Um, just like these little, like, or these moments where someone will say something homophobic on the street and the way that this adds up to an experience that is not just one experience, but is always imbricated upon itself with all these other hundreds of experiences that are the queer experience. Um, I was very aware when I wrote it that this was a labor I was doing on behalf of um, not just other queer people, but to show straight people like this is what the Bruce MacArthur trial is a symptom of, and it is not the ultimate problem. Um, it's work worth doing when it's done, but I do think acknowledging it is exhausting to do is important. Yeah. And I like that you brought up the Toronto public library. Um, cause that situation I think is a really clear example of like what happens when you don't like somebody has a policy, the library has a policy that's supposedly supposed to protect people in these situations. And fundamentally the policy fails and our response is to have a conversation about it as opposed to acknowledging like your, your policy didn't work. 
Right, exactly. And especially when it comes to cultural institutions, we have a bad habit, I think, of, um, I mean, we all live under capitalism and our responses tend to be capitalist responses. So they're, the knee-jerk response was like, well, it's time to boycott the library. Um, the, the fact is that the library is functionally, I mean, if you, there's a, a famous uh, tweet where someone said like, if you proposed a library in 2019, they'd run you out of town as a socialist. Like a library is a socialist mm-hmm. institution. It is a resource that many poor people need, uh, many marginalized people need. And seeding that ground and saying, well, trans people will no longer use the library is letting them win a fight we, we fought hard to win. Um, So I think individual, for example, I'm working with several authors who uh, who are not trans who cancel their events. And I think that's important things. That's important gestures to make. Um, But expecting trans people to give up that ground is not um, the fight we should be doing. This is this is a thing I think is very important for allies, for people who want to include marginalized people in the workplace, in society. You can't just turn to them as a resource when you want them. You have to defend them. You have to work on behalf of their rights. What was so gratifying this week was seeing how many people turned up to protest at the library uh, when this talk was being given. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, On that note, too, it's something I've been grappling with for a while. Um, so Work and Culture released a research report last May uh, called Making It Work. And as part of the questions... We asked organizations or companies who filled it out. So these are just cultural companies. So like, where are you on the spectrum of tackling some of these issues? Like, do you have a diversity and inclusion policy? Do you test it? Do you measure it? Have you enacted anything practical from it? What we found, a lot of organizations were like, yeah, this is great. And it's part of our values. And it's something that matters to us. But the further we moved along the action, action spectrum, uh-huh. it dropped off. Like, people were just not doing anything about it. Uh, so for mm-hmm. me, that was sort of like a eye-opening moment. I think some of it is well-intentioned and maybe people being like, I don't really know where to start. Um, but I think that's where for me, you know, we have a lot of these conversations, especially someone who works in culture, like about, you know, we need to make spaces inclusive and we need to make sure that people feel safe. But I think like fundamentally the conversation isn't enough. Right. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, like you work with Glad Day Bookshop, which is the you know, doing great work. Like, how do you ensure that it is a safe space? And like, what's some of the work that goes into that? And can you give us a sense of what that looks like? Yeah, uh, I think the first thing we always think about is that we will never be 100% a safe space. I think that we we always try to use the word safer space, uh, mm-hmm. because ultimately, you'll you will never create an environment that is free from harm, right? You will never create a space where you can guarantee that everyone will behave the way you hope they will behave. Um, so that's something we try to be very cognizant about. The other thing is to think about architecture, like to think about, I mean, it is the thing that is hardest to change. And the thing that is most obviously oppressive is like, well, where are your bathrooms? Are they accessible? Uh, are they gender neutral? Are they safe to use? Do you feel comfortable using them? Um, where, where are your bars? Where are your tables? Can a wheelchair user access the door? Like these are things that, and again, these are things that capital impinges upon, right? Like uh, the automated mechanism to open our door is very expensive to repair. We're trying to get a grant to do so. Um, making sure that's a priority, I think, is important. Um, we try, and then what kind? What do we do when we hold events? We try to uh, begin every event with a land acknowledgement, right? Um, we, we begin events by saying, uh, we have a poster up that Black Lives Matter gave us as a reminder from a few years ago when Black Lives Matter shut down the, the Pride Parade. Um, the poster says like, don't ever make us remind you that we too are queer, right? 
Um, so keeping in mind how many communities interact with our space is always important to us, um, that people are not just one thing, that we are an intersectional space uh, and that we have to be inclusive of two-spirit people, of, of black people, of BIPOC people. Um, that's always important. And I think that you have to do your best and you have to hope that you can put up as many slogans as you want, but people will quickly determine whether or not your intentions are uh, coming from a good place and whether the work you're doing is actually uh, living out those values. Because values are great to have, but are you living them or not, I think is important. Um, I'm also curious about, like, I guess an internal sort of battle I have. Um, is where how do you navigate sort of with I guess the dilemma of should we just make an existing institution or space friendlier or do we need to like you know for lack of a better word burn it to the ground because it's in its DNA is sort of opposed <laughs> to this and do we need to make new spaces? <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a that's an ongoing question for me too. I mean, even in my own work, like um, if you spend any amount of time online as a creator. Uh, a moment comes where someone says, why are you constantly trying to make these old things queer? Like, why don't you just make your own? Um, I work in comic books. Uh, it is the big fight you have with nerds is like, well, Iceman's not gay. He's not been gay for 50 years. How dare you make this character gay, right? And it's like, um, and I think that speaks to the same question you're asking, right? Like, do you, do you queer institutions that already exist or do you have to build your own? Um, and it's a, it's, I think both it is a, and I have to admit that there is, there is always going to come with that a certain amount of compromise. I've worked on many licenses, some of which have gone to print, some of which that I lost the fight and I could not, I could not, there was a script, we had an artist and then the, the licensor said, we can't make this character queer and they pull the project. Like, um, that's always going to be the way it is. And, and part of that problem is that the people in charge are always going to be the ancient straight white men billionaires who pull the strings, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to fight uphill and create your own queer content or do you want to play with the big toys? Do you want to see like a Marvel movie that has a queer character and who isn't in it for 30 seconds and says, I'm gay and then he disappears, right? Like, <laughs> I think both those things have a value and I, I yeah. admire people who will refuse to make those kinds of compromises. Um, I have my own queer projects that aren't attached to larger licenses that I hope to get off the ground. And you hope that the two kind of feed each other is, is my hope. Um, I even do the same kind of work. For example, I'm working on my novel, uh, Dayspring, which a version of it is up on the same Hazlitt page as the Death, Death in the Village. And it's a queering of the gospel narrative. So it's, it's about Jesus, but it's sort of putting and centralizing a queer narrative in that story. Um, and that's the same kind of work that I want to do. I don't want to cede to the ground of these major institutions, whether it's Marvel Comics, whether it's the Toronto Public Library, whether it's Christianity. <laughs> I don't want to just throw out, I don't want to just throw out things that I think have real value and say, no, these are straight and I have to make my own from scratch. It's like, no, actually Michelangelo painted that ceiling and he's a big homo and like Leonardo da Vinci painted that and he's a big homo. And it's like, I want to insist and like, if you look at the first panel where Iceman arrives in X-Men number one, he comes swinging down a like stripper pole. Like there is something inherently queer about these texts and I will not let yeah. you have them is something that I think my work is important in doing. That's a great point. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I to read the Marvel comics and when Iceman came out, that was very, I would say monumental because like it's, you see all these um, people who read 
comic books and they want to claim hold to these spaces like as if no one else can can be a part of that culture or be a part of that um, entity. So by, as you said, I like the idea of having both. Um, yes, these spaces already exist, but we should try to infiltrate it, you know, yeah. try to keep working hard and hoping that the people who actually um, govern those spaces are receptive and they learn that everyone should be included. And then also, as you said, creating your own space and hoping that what you do in your um, in your own time feeds into the other um, parts of society. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, I grew up with those comics. Like I, I remember in the 90s reading... When I was 13, I knew Iceman was gay because you could see when you look at it now, it's like, oh, the writers were trying so hard and you can see editorial intervening. Like the thing I've learned being a creator is that so often what looks on the outside like queer baiting, like making it seem like, oh, maybe, maybe is often frequently a writer going to the absolute edge of what they're allowed to get away with and then being told you have to stop. Um, But yeah, I think that so watching these narratives unfold has always been fascinating to me, but it's not just at this sort of lowbrow level. Like even I've been going more and more to the opera lately. And I think that that is a very, a space that is dominated by conservative older voices. Um, are there ways to queer these operas, these classics like Rasulka I was watching the other day, which is basically the little mermaid. Um, Hans Christian Andersen is a very queer creator. Uh, the little mermaid is in many ways a queer narrative uh, then over against that sort of new operas like Rufus Wainwright doing Hadrian and like centralizing queer characters on the stage for these these older patrons, right? Like co-opting these spaces, creating new art in these spaces. Ultimately, all art is in dialogue. Um, we only understand each other if we're speaking the same language. And creating a new language seems to me like starting from scratch in a way that I'm not always interested in doing. That's that's a good point. Um, so we, I think we can touch on your Dumpster Raccoon film series. I think that's really interesting. Can you talk about why was creating this space important to you and for the queer community? Sure. Um, the Dumpster Raccoon film series is, uh, it's run out of the Review Cinema right now in Toronto. Um, once a month I show a film. Uh, it, they range broadly in genre and type and quality. (laughs) Uh, And the idea behind these films is that we're sort of rummaging through the garbage of pop culture, like a raccoon, and seeing what what is in this dumpster that is worth saving. Is there still something edible in this? Um, So I'll show, we showed Barbarella, we showed Flash Gordon, um, we show RoboCop, we showed, we did the Summer of Erhoven where we showed like Showgirls and RoboCop and Starship Troopers. Uh, And the idea is, Maybe you've never seen these movies or maybe you've seen them and you misunderstood them. I think that, that that's definitely been my experience as a kid that like, oh, you didn't realize you didn't understand what camp was. Um, you didn't understand what satire was. Um, and there is something inherently queer, I think, about this project because there is something inherently queer about camp. There is something inherently queer about satire, but also just by the nature of who I assemble in the audience who attends my events the event becomes itself kind of queer. So for example, we show movies like RoboCop, Starship Troopers, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter. These films that their dominating audience has often been sort of bro-y guys. They still attend, like they're in the room cheering and whooping, but um, 
when you when I give my talk before the film or when my mostly queer audience engages with the film, it changes the the texture and the timber of the movie. So um, when the audience is able to sort of it is a different experience to watch Mortal Kombat and have a room full of people erupt into cheers when Liu Kang takes off his shirt or when Zangief in Street Fighter is suddenly showing off his hairy chest, right? Like that is not the usual way these films receive responses. And having that eye in the room and ha- letting that eye dominate to me also matters. There's queer texts and there's queer audiences. And I think those are different things. And I think that they speak to each other in ways that um, not everyone that they can do different kinds of work, right? Sort of not that different, actually, from the way I said, like, I always knew Iceman was queer before the comics made him queer. Like, an audience can engage in a text in a way that the text is designed or not designed to open up to, right? And that kind of work, this is a very 90s idea, right? Like, I think that young people today are like, well, if they don't kiss on screen, it doesn't count. Um, that wasn't my experience growing up. Like we had to, I grew up watching Buffy and watching like Dawson's Creek where it's like, you'll take whatever scraps you get. Sometimes there'll be the text will like imply something and you have to go home and write your own fanfic. And that- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've touched on this a bit, but um, like, you're obviously, you, you're doing a lot of different kinds of things, right? So you're doing a film series, you're an author, you're a creator in lots of different areas. How do you balance that? Not well. um balancing it is always a problem uh i do i definitely i mean they tell you to do what you love i definitely do what i love but the flip side the flip side of doing what you love is everything you do for fun ends up turning into work uh it, it started with my phd right like i i was like oh i love these texts i love shakespeare i love milton why don't I write about them? And it's like, well, then you're eat, sleeping and breathing your job, right? Like, yeah. uh, especially as a pop culture critic, like like the Dumpster Raccoon series, for example, like I literally can't watch a movie without being like, well, I could show this and I could do that. And I watch Buffy and it's like, oh, I'll write this piece about Buffy and maybe I'll submit a, a script for them. Like it, it is hard to find that balance. I don't really regret that. Like, um, even with glad day, like my friends, my boyfriend, like my life, my work and my life tend to become quite porous. That's not something I've ever been good about defending. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I have one more question left and it's kind of a big one. So I'm just going to spring it on you. Okay. Um, I will put a bit of context to this. I don't normally like asking whether it's queer people or marginalized people generally to explain how other people can do better at engaging with them. But I do want to get the sense of someone who works with Glad Day and does all this very like needed and high profile sort of work. What do you, what are some like simple or easier things that people could just do better about when they're trying to go out and maybe do some well-intentioned outreach what are some of the easier things they can just stop doing well we talked about i talked a little bit about the language stuff that's just sort of i mean keep yourself up to date i think is important but um one of the other things i think i sort of mentioned earlier is like you have to let people have access to your toys right like especially the listeners you have on this podcast like you have resources you have material and reach that queer people just systemically are denied um Mm -hmm people frequently, I mean, we, we have the largest uh, percentage of the homeless population. Um, we are frequently cut off from resources at key moments in development, right? Like parents disenfranchise you. Um, parents simply uh, re- retract their, their resources from you. Um, 
or you've suffered traumas at a moment uh, where you should have been growing your career. Like catching people up is important work and real work you can do. Here is the megaphone. What do you need to do with it? I think is important. Um, related to that, queer people need defending. You don't just need to listen and uh, give them a platform. You need to be aware. Queerness is a permanent minority. It's not, I mean, when you watch Fox News and they're talking about shifting demographics, queer people are a stable demographic. We will never be the majority. We can never uh, use our own sheer power of vote to change things, which means we need allies. You need to be that ally and you need to be an active ally. So when things like the Toronto Public Library happen, you need to stand up because the the population of women who are trans is always going to be small and they need your defending. You need to include us from the beginning, I think is important too. It can't just be you develop a project and then, oh, what does a queer person think of this project? Because then by then the architecture's in place. Um, and that can be literally true, right? Like you built a building and here's the women's washroom and here's the men's washroom. It's like, well, you you wrote this, this uh, manual for your company where is the queer voice in it? Um, are you just throwing in stock images or have you thought properly about, I used to do, when I was in grad school, for example, there was maternity leave and there was paternity leave. Um, and at a meeting of 1300 people, this very brave person raised their hand and said, why do I have to classify myself as a father when I identify as a woman? Um, just to claim my child's paternity leave, right? Like these are systemic things that like, and the, the people on stage are like, oh, we hadn't thought of that, right? Like, <laughs> like you need to think about these things. Um, and you also need to think about queerness is not a resource to be mined. Uh, mm -hmm. We are not uh, an angle for your marketing. We are not a way to extract capital from an admittedly a population that sometimes has quite a bit of money because they don't have as many kids. So uh, we are not just something for you to take money from. We are a community that has a distinctive uh, and a not universal perspective. Uh, and respecting that and not trying to immediately universalize our experiences, I think is important. Um, there's a tendency in the early, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, the queer liberation movement really placed its emphasis on uh, love is love. We're just like you. Uh, give us the same rights you have. And I think that was to actually our own detriment because it has given people the impression we are just like you. And in fact, we have a different vocabulary. We have a different lived experience. Uh, and you don't get to just all lives matter our experience. Um, it, it needs to be respected as distinct and um, special. I think that's important. Yeah, that is um that is really important to note. And one thing that I remember you said earlier, which relates to what you're saying, now, you just said now, is you can't turn to us to work for you without working on behalf of our rights. So I think that's a great point. Um, so on that note, um, I was just going to say thank you for being part of our second episode and we really appreciate all the commentary that you've made um lisa would you do you have anything to say um no i think that was a really poignant and good place to end i think for me one of the bigger things that i try to tell people is you know being queer is not a monolithic experience yeah. um there's a rich variety of identities and perspectives in there and yeah no i think that people should listen to this and learn a lot from it i think um but yeah anthony thank you so much for sharing this with us oh thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure thanks for listening hustle and thrive is brought to you by working culture and creative works conference if you enjoyed this episode 
please share and comment. We're on Twitter and Facebook as at Working Culture, or you can send us an email at info at To learn more, visit us at creativeworksconference.com.